Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. There is something that is not new to our town and other communities, the income gap between blacks and whites. It will likely come as no surprise to learn that African Americans earn a lot less than whites, and it's an income gap that is widening. On today's program, we'll find out how and why this disparity exists and what can be done to overcome this inequity. Joining me in studio are St. Louis Public Radio digital reporter Kay Petrin. Kay's posted a story on the issue on our website. Also in studio is William Tate, Dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Washington University. He's done considerable research on the subject at hand. Thank you both so much for being with us. Great to have you. Thank you. Thanks. Kay, let me begin with you. Uh, give me a broad stroke uh, version of your story. Uh, it's Obviously, it's very detailed, but just an mm-hmm. idea of where you're coming from in it and where you get your numbers. Yeah, so we looked at the census data that was released at the end of 2017. So that goes basically through 2016. Um, And we saw that the income gap in the city had actually widened um, when you look all the way back to 2005, which is how long the data is available on the census website, um, between black and white households. And that even when you look at the region more largely, there's still a pretty significant gap. Uh, So we started asking, okay, what's driving that? Why is it continuing? Why has it actually gotten worse? Um, And so started to talking to experts and people who are working in St. Louis and have been working in St. Louis for years. For the record, as I understand the numbers, the the gap is that African Americans are earning about half, uh, just about half of what whites are earning in this in this region. Yes, slightly less than half in the city, and uh, about fifty five percent in the larger region. Dean Tate, this come as a surprise to you? No, it's not a surprise. The trends have varied over the decades. Uh, The 60s and 70s, we saw a shrinking of this gap. The 80s, uh, we saw an expansion. Uh, The 90s, it shrunk. And then from 2000 on, it's been expanding. And it's been expanding even when you control for education, when you control for um, geographic region, when you control for where people live. Uh, This gap has just been expanding. So the analysis is spot on with respect to the current trends. Why is it expanding? In St. Louis, per se, um, we have a problem largely with income mobility. So imagine if you already start with a gap, and the gap starts no matter what your education level is and when you enter the job market. So the gap exists for new college graduates entering the job market. So they, they, students are transitioning from the student status to employment, and they, they already have this racial gap no matter what their education is, whether they just have high school, less than high school, college graduates, the gap is even larger for people with more education. And that suggests from the research information that people are entering into a marketplace that uh, has observable dis- discrimination. Uh, that is, there's no other way to explain it when you're controlling for uh, education and background factors like that. Last night, uh, the president in his uh, State of the Union address uh, pointed out, and uh, was very proud of the fact, that the unemployment rate among African Americans in this country is the lowest that it's ever been. That's really only half the story, though, isn't it? Obviously, with these numbers that, uh, that Kay has provided. We certainly want and want to celebrate low unemployment. So let's take the positive news that has been trending for about a decade. The challenge is that since the 2000 um, census information, 
this income gap has been getting wider and wider, and there's no fixing it. If So it's better to have more education, obviously, because then you're, on average, making more money, but that you still will experience this income gap. And St. Louis is unique in that our income mobility is really at the lower uh, percentile of growth possibilities among um, the, the t- 50 or so largest metropolitan regions in the United States. So we have a very unique problem that has really been captured in this article. Kay, let me put this to you, and then I'll ask Dean Tate to answer the same question. I'm going to ask you to, to come to a, a conclusion based on your personal observation. Much has been made in recent years over the fact that women make much less than men. It's been widely discussed and widely debated and talked about. Why do you think it is that very few people are talking about this gap? That's a good question. Um, I think that there, in some senses, is a a lot more national-level conversation about gender discrepancies than than there always is about uh, racial discrepancies in income. Um, I think... Part of that might be because it's because gender is something that, regardless of race, everybody who has a who's in the workforce is going to say, "Oh yes, I you know I see this." Or if they don't see it, there's at least not this sort of. Uh, uh, okay, let me back up. I think I think that a lot of white folks can get on board with, "Oh, there's a gender gap." Um, and I think that talking to people and looking at, you know, what's what's written about racial income gaps, there's a lot of white people who aren't willing to say, yes, there is a racial income gap in the same way that they're willing to say that there's a, a gender income gap. Dean Tate, your thoughts on that? Your, your question is excellent one. And when you look at the data nationally, African-American women experience the greatest wage disparities controlling for all these factors, education and the like, they have a gender effect in their their wages as well as the racial effect. And so they get a double whammy on this. At a time when actually their trends in terms of uh, academic attainment are going up. And so, you know, so you're doing all the right things, but you're still experiencing this these two huge effects in terms of uh, being rewarded by the marketplace. I'm still a little perplexed by the uh, the uh, comment that you made earlier with regard to college-educated African Americans, uh, even with the education, which is so important, uh, up and down the line, they're well behind. How, how far behind are they? The, the they generally enter into the marketplace with if you have a bachelor's degree roughly between 8 to 10 points or percentage points behind in wage um, when they enter the marketplace. And as they stay in the marketplace, that gap grows. And those who get more education, um, the gap is even larger than that 10-point um, uh, wage gap. So I, I don't want anyone to listen to this and say, don't get more education. No, no. You absolutely should. <clears throat> However, if you think it's going to change the wage gap, it's not. It will improve potentially your overall wages, but you will not, it will not on average change the wage gap. Do these men and women have any recourse? Um, women do. It's gone to the Supreme Court when they discover that they're making less than men for doing the same job. Uh, and, and they've won those cases. 
do the young men and women we're talking about here in this case have any recourse? Well, there's obviously legal recourse if you have access to the information in the industry you're in in your particular corporation. Let's be really honest about what happens when you sue your employer. Generally speaking, you are out of that marketplace probably for the remainder of your career. So, yes, there is legal recourse, and there's possibilities to do those kinds of things, but the likelihood of that being an effective tool for the individual who brings the case forward is not very high. But certainly we would imagine and would want to have um, some oversight around this and, and more transparency in organizations about how um, they are compensating their employees. That day may or may not be a long way off, I yes. would think. Yeah. Kay, let me come back to you. Um, the, uh, you have an example uh, as part of your research on this, and we'd like to hear that example. Now, why don't you set it up for us? Yeah, so one gentleman I talked to, uh, Perez Maxwell, is a really good – speaks to this issue really well because he, he graduated with two bachelor's degrees, um, went straight into working as a corrections officer in St. Louis County in the 80s. And um, he had applied for a couple promotions because he wanted to be a social worker, didn't get them, didn't get them. And he said eventually his manager sat him down and basically told him, you're never going to get a promotion as long as I work here. Um, And he said it was because he was too black and too progressive. Uh, So he left that job, took a huge pay cut, and he said it took him years to get back up to where he was. I gather gather he didn't realize he was going to be taking such a, a wage hit. I think he was sort of aware of it because he went from, you know, corrections to teaching, uh, which he knew that there was some difference. But I don't think he really realized how big of a difference that would make in his daily life until he got that first paycheck. Let's hear about his realization of that change. I remember my first paycheck. And and, and, and sister told me that it was my annual salary was only going to be like $14,100 which I said was like $10,000 less than what I had pre- made in the previous years with Justice Service. And yeah, and it really didn't dawn on, on me until I uh, got that first check. And I was in line in Clayton, down, and I opened it up while I was waiting in line to deposit it in my account. And I looked at it and screamed. And the poor lady standing behind me thought I was having a heart attack. And she goes, what's wrong? And I was like, it's like about $300 missing from my check. And so I went ahead and deposited and went to school the next day. And sister, you know, she goes, Perez, that's all you get. And then it just kind of, it just kind of, you know, all fell into place. Dude, you're, you're an urban teacher now. This, this, this is what they do. This is what they do. $14,000 a year is not going to go very far in and of itself, is it, Dean Tate? No, this is in the 1980s, and Perez experiences multiple effects. Number one in the 1980s is when you had this expansion of wage disparities uh, for African Americans. So he hits the job market in the 1980s, and it's really just at a macro level not good. He's in an industry where the wage disparities by in, in the industry are relatively Low education and social work, they tend to be government scenarios where the wages are transparent. But then he transitions out of the public sector because of what he describes as a discriminatory uh, environment. 
and then into a, a private sector where the wages are much lower. And uh, it's going to take him, as he said, years to get back to where he was in the 1980s. And it, pro- it probably took better part of a decade or more. And he may never get back. And this is what happens. So when you see the wage gap, when you start controlling for experience and you see it growing because people are having radically different experiences in the job market. And that gap is just getting bigger and bigger over time. And that's what Perez represents. Okay, we have to point out, I think, that uh, Perez did stay in that job uh, for a good, a good long while, didn't he? The teaching job? Yeah. yeah he, he stayed at his teaching job for uh, 14 years in various capacities. He got promoted uh, several times, I, I understand. Mm-hmm. And he, he said it was, you know, his favorite his favorite job, one of his favorite jobs that he has done. Um, but, you know, he, he still – he sort of takes it – he said, you know, I know I'm never going to make that much money, but this is what I want to do. I, I want to help people. Um, and, you know, doing that through the corrections job wasn't going to be an option. So. Dean Tate, the, the root of all of this, and you uh, Im- implied this a little while ago, uh, the basics here is this is really based on racial discrimination. That's the bottom line to this. The, re- the research indicates – I want to be careful because I, I, w- I want this to be evidence-based. The research indicates that discrimination is a factor in these wage disparities. And the best place to see it is when you enter the job market with very similar skill, similar education, same region, living in a metropolitan area, and you enter the market and then you begin to see this gap. And the individuals who stay in the market over time, the gap is growing. And so I think that's that's the best natural experiment to suggest that discrimination is definitely a factor in all of this. And there are other factors, but you can't get around the one that Perez described. There are other factors that would uh, seem to support this, and we'll go through some of them. All of them are involved in in Kay's story. But um, the, the reference in the story is to access to opportunities. And again, this is something that you alluded to a couple of moments ago. The fact that um, the, the people that we're talking about, the African Americans, have have limited choices. Well, that's where the geography piece comes into right. in, into the storyline. So if I enter the job market, I'm making less on average. It means I have access to a different community where I can live. That impacts the transportation factors that I might have. If I'm not living in a community where businesses are clustered, I'm not gaining the social capital that's associated with the networks that are around these business opportunities. This causes greater um, division in wages. And so we see this happening. St. Louis is the archetype of it because we have hyper-segregation. Individuals tend to live in places where the transportation, individuals, African-Americans, where transportation isn't optimal. Business isn't necessarily there. They can't generate the social capital that's necessary to to move into um, greater opportunity structure. Discrimination already exists in it. And then you see this now wage compression that might happen for an individual as others might move into a community where there's greater social capital networking. The businesses are clustered. It, and it's a repeating story, and it just continues to happen over over the decades. It's a vicious uh, cycle, vicious circle, That's as, as it were. Uh, Kay, what did you find out about home ownership being a factor in all of this? 
Yeah. So one of the um, main one of the things that actually I discussed with Dean Tate um, is that there when you go back decades in St. Louis, because of residential segregation, a lot of black families who could have bought a home um, weren't able to invest in either good neighborhoods or get get, you know, get a home at all. And that really has a large effect down the line. Because what you're seeing in, in income is, you know, you're seeing what you're making every year, but you're not seeing, okay, a home in a good neighborhood puts you in a better school, puts you in a potentially a healthier environment, and it has all of these sort of trickle-down effects on your daily life uh, just, you know, by having by having equity that that a child is growing up in a stable home. Um, and if you're if you're renting, it's a lot harder to build some of that wealth that you don't see reflected in the income statistics. And so that was uh, one of the factors that that sort of was behind those numbers is that white families in St. Louis have had access to homes and have been able to buy houses in in good neighborhoods with good school districts for decades. And that's a lot newer to African-Americans living in St. Louis. And, and Dean Tate, and uh, going through the material that, uh, that Kay has provided in her story, one of the things that she points out, we've heard this for a long time, that maybe, maybe the single most important issue, or certainly one of them, is transportation, getting to the places where the jobs are. You alluded to the fact, you know, access is, is, is part of that. But uh, the need for public transportation and the expense of public transportation to get to those jobs is, uh, is an enormous challenge. It's an enormous challenge here. And we know that businesses cluster on highways. Uh, many of our uh, really high-wage opportunities are right off the expressways. And you, you, it ex- they assume that you have a car. And if you don't, and public transportation doesn't get you there, if it takes five hours, as was alluded to in Kay's wonderful article by Perez and, and others, to get well, the, the second uh, person uh, you Corey Robinson, Corey, yes. That, that is an impediment to you actually being able to participate in these industries that we really are becoming quite good at, biotechnology and some of the other uh, areas where we're beginning to explode and having great opportunity structures the, the the challenge is going to be how do you how do you get there and are we going to have mixed income housing in those environments so that people who are indigenous to those communities actually can take uh, take advantage of the, uh, the the working opportunities. Do you want to tell us anything about Corey Robinson? Yeah, Corey was uh, really interesting to talk to because he sort of has the experience of just coming into the job market right now. He's twenty one. Uh, he's been working uh, as a contractor or as a janitor for a contract company, and he takes the bus five days a week uh, to, from Florissant, where he lives, to Berkeley. So he's he's paying. That's I think if you break it down, he said it's about twenty twenty dollars a week to get to his job. Um, and he's making eight fifty an hour. So that ends up being actually a pretty big chunk of his paycheck. And when it comes down to it, he said he, you know, he'd love to be making more money. He'd love to either get a raise at his job or ha- be able to apply for better opportunities. But he just doesn't have the resources making what he's making now to start applying for other jobs to keep his phone on to even he said you know he hadn't gotten a haircut uh recently because he just couldn't afford it uh so it was he he's sort of coming into this like okay i have to take the bus that adds five hours to everything that i'm doing this week and it costs extra money and he can't change jobs outside of the region that he lives in because he's relying on transportation public transport 
um, to get to work. Dean Tate, we hear stories like this of a Corey Robinson. Sometimes people have to make the choice as to whether or not they're going to eat that day or catch the bus to get to work. This is correct. He he lacks um, the social capital. He lacks um, the, the income and the wealth that some young people entering the job market might have that might give them a greater advantage in the job market. He's in a very tough position, especially in our particular regional job market. And these are not isolated cases we're talking about. The, uh, this is a macro-level trend. I mean, th- yeah. he represents a, a, a big trend line here in our region. Yeah. There's another issue that uh, plays a big role in all of this, and I think we'll have Tom raise it for us. He's on the line calling from St. Louis. Tom, go ahead. You're on the air. Thank you. It seems like one of the major factors of many factors contributing to uh, multi-generational poverty is uh, inequalities in education, and it seems like that's largely because uh, our across America, much of our school funding is based on districts. So if you live in a poor area, you go to a poor school. Um, are there any serious proposals that anybody's working on on uh, how to equalize education better in terms of funding? Would you like to take that one on, Dean Tate? No, <laughs> there there are there are no serious proposals. I mean, w- we had here uh, two cases of interdistrict transfer. There was um, the desegregation order, and then uh, the Turner case led uh, to uh, more people being able to have access to different school districts. Um, that has um, been rescinded now, and so there is a very small interdistrict. Um, efforts still going on, but largely um, we find ourselves um, with more school, many school districts that are, you know, underdeveloped on many fronts. We don't get a lot of data about teacher quality and things of that sort, but if we did, you would see that uh, there's a tremendous disparity across the districts. The the quality of education would certainly be a a factor in all of this It is one of the biggest factors in income mobility in a region. Uh, let's take another call. Dan is joining us all the way from Fayetteville, North Carolina. How do you like that? Go ahead, Dan. You're on the air. Thanks. I'm a truck driver. I'm from St. Louis. I'm just driving through North Carolina. I have a question that sounds like it might be more of a devil's advocate side, but I'm really curious to hear the response. Uh, your gentleman had said that when you work public sector, there's a lot less of a wage gap because the salaries are a lot more transparent and set. How does how do they think wage negotiations come into play when you move to the private sector? It's a lot harder to nail down racial discrimination when salary is negotiable. Uh, Dean Tate, why did you respond to that? I think he was referring to what you had said. So, yeah, so he, he has uh, delineated one of the factors that has actually been a contributing factor to wage inequality. The private sector in many regions, um, the the private wages at one time were negotiated largely through union um, strategies, collective bargaining. Those have uh, become weaker over the past uh, 30 years. And as such, um, there aren't the same kinds of benchmarks that are associated with salaries that in many industries. So an individual absolutely can enter in and begin negotiating individual um, wages. And therefore, all the things that we just described, if if there's any discrimination or bias, 
with with the employer, um, those can be manifested in the, in those negotiations. And so he he's just nailed one of the main reasons why we have some of the problems. That's uh, Dean William Tate of Washington University. He's with me in studio along with St. Louis Public Radio digital reporter Kay Petrin. We were talking about the uh, wage inequality, inequities, if you will, uh, between white workers and African-American workers. And we pointed out earlier in this program that the African-American worker in the St. Louis region earns about half of what white workers do for the same job. Back to our conversation now. We'll take a tweet from Amy who asks an interesting question. Do digital divide issues contribute to income inequality? St. Louis lags in Internet access across most major metro areas. Vital skills for finding and keeping jobs for all. Kay, any research on that from you? You know, not for this story, but actually for um, a story on net neutrality, I did speak with a gentleman with Project Appleseed, uh, which is a group that says exactly that, that – families not having access to internet consistently or high quality internet or not being able to afford internet can really influence their children's ability to continue in education and get the sort of resources outside of school um, that might be necessary to get some of those important experiences beyond the classroom. Um, And so there there are definitely people saying that, yes, they call it uh, digital redlining can contribute. <laughs> so the good old redlining back redlining, into the conversation. Very familiar term. <laughs> right. Um, so, that, so that is something that people are saying, but uh, didn't do specific research on it for this story. Mm. Any thoughts on that, uh, Dean Tate? The, 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 net, the Internet is a way of building uh, your, your network, and social capital is a factor in developing job opportunity. So you, you could hypothesize that if you didn't have access to Internet, LinkedIn, all the different strategies we, we currently use to promote ourselves in the marketplace, you wouldn't have that. I mean, we, you, if you're sitting in LinkedIn or some of the other environments that, you know, I, I'm not looking for a job, so I don't know the market. <laughs> but, but if you're sitting in those environments and you're promoting yourself there, clearly you're going to have more opportunity and you're going to be able to build more of a network. And I think that that certainly would be a problem if you didn't have access. And that is something Corey Robinson talked about as well, because he he said he can't keep his his phone access on. So he can't access a lot of phone apps that he would be searching for jobs on um, unless he's, you know, somewhere with Wi-Fi, which he also doesn't have consistently. Mm. So. Uh, Dean Tate, you've done work uh, in the past on the For the Sake of All report that Washington University and, uh, and others have been involved in. And that the focus on that, as I recall, was on health and how health really impacts so many different areas, and, and particularly in, in poor communities. How does that work into what we're talking about here? Is there a relationship between health and job opportunities and job pay? Well, if we start with the premise of the forsake of all, which was that health was a frontline factor for doing well in school, and school is a frontline factor, a quality factor that employers look for, um, having good health when you're young, having insurance, um, you know, protecting your brain, if you will, and helping your brain to develop the cognitive skills that are necessary and the social skills that are necessary was partly a, a big deal of the For Sake of All project. And then that speaks to your education and your opportunity to take advantage of whatever you've been afforded. And if you can do well there, um, this relationship between health and education is interdependent, and you should be able to enter the job market healthy, 
brain really rocking and rolling, so to speak. You're really able to show employers what you can do. So I would think that it, it definitely is a factor. They are definitely interdependent, all of these. Um, and then think about um, some of the folks we've talked about. If they are underemployed or their wages aren't that good, that begins to impact their children, their family resources and the like, which then can impact um, health, which then they, now impacts education. And you see how the cycle perpetuates itself. So they are all interdependent and extremely important. All of this brings us to the the big question of the day and something we have to discuss, and that is, you know, where do we go from here? How do we dig ourselves out of this situation? Do you have any ideas? Is this something that uh, that government can get involved with or the business community? Yes. Let me say this. We are doing a lot of really positive things in St. Louis in terms of our economic development. I mentioned biotechnology. We're going to have a big geospatial environment we're going to create here. All of these are unique opportunities to uh, build community in such a way that you have the housing, the schooling, and the job opportunities wrapped in geospace. And the big question is, who will have access to and live in those environments and be able to take advantage of what we're creating? Ultimately, um, we put together a package about $450 million to $500 million to keep a losing football team. And I think mm. it, that hurts the brain, by the way. Why don't yeah. we create our own brain regimes where we, we have these things that we want to develop here, biotech, and geospatial, and make sure that we invest the resources, the housing, the schooling factors that are necessary so that we have our own local brain regimes and that we become very attractive to stay here and very attractive for people to come here, and we advance them in that way. We could do it community by community, but we need an alpha test. We just haven't done it. Mm -hmm. And so where are we going to do that and build that in such a way that it's robust and can demonstrate that we could do this more broadly in this community? Who takes the lead? We all have to take the lead. It's a a brain regime. It has to be a public-private partnership. Universities, corporations... Uh, the government officials, they have to be, we have to be working in, in, in collaborative fashion. We design everything we have here. There are no accidents. There are no random buildings being put up. We can design these kinds of communities. Um, otherwise, the default position is to continue to do what we're doing, which will only lead to um, greater acceleration of this income gap uh, inequality that has been so carefully articulated in this article. Do you have any thoughts on that, uh, Kay, as to where we go from here? I heard a lot of answers to that question while I was reporting on this story. And to me, honestly, I feel like I didn't get a, a good enough grasp of it to, you know, that's part of why I didn't end up in the story because I'm like, I want more questions about this. I want to see what other cities have done. I want to see what people are doing now and what we know about how it's worked. Because you, you've sort of heard, um, I heard Dean Tate's perspective. I also spoke with uh, another economist who doesn't focus regionally but focuses nationally. And she said that a lot of uh, educational access programs, increasing and increasing funding to those is something that has worked in some places and could work here. Um, and Corey Robinson's perspective was get involved with the unions, get that sort of representation on the job. My job should be you know, more respected than than it is, uh, was sort of his perspective. So it's sort of all across the board, lots of different theories. Um, and I, I don't know necessarily that I, I would, that I've 
found all the evidence to put to put a like factual statement behind a specific method. More work to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dean Tate, do you see us leaning in the direction that you're proposing at all? We are definitely designing outstanding innovate, innovation in St. Louis. We're really doing a great job. We're, we haven't really blended what we know about the evidence related to economic development more broadly of individuals indigenous to the community to some of these designs. My hope is that over time we will pivot because if we don't and we create these really high-wage scenarios that people indigenous to St. Louis, particularly blacks, may not have access to, even regardless of their education, then we will just, we'll be at a, we'll double the, the number we've already doubled. I mean, it, it, so we have to figure out a way to design these situations differently. We're going to have to leave it at that. And uh, for folks who want uh, the full story, go to stlpublicradio.org and read uh, Kay Petwin's story. Kay, thank you for being with us today. From St. Louis Public Radio, of course, and Dean William Tate of Washington University. It's been great to talk to you, and thank thanks you. so much for being a part of this. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.